0: Welcome to a special Encore presentation of Compassion Radio.
1: In 2014, unfortunately, when the war started, our school actually became a barracks for Russian soldiers. In God's timing, uh, I met Ivan Rusin, the president of UATS. He is himself uh, a missions teacher, missiologist, and Mm -hmm. he was interested in finding more help because he wanted to develop more missions programs. I was glad to be able to join uh, in the fall of 2014.
0: The war in Ukraine grinds on with no end in sight. Yet God knew what was coming and prepared his people for such a time as this. Hi, Bram Floria here with Compassion Radio. When it comes to the biggest war in the world right now, today's guest has been in the thick of it from the very beginning. And I'm not talking about February 24th, 2022. No, the big blow-up came after eight years of battles, uneasy truces, flare-ups, and seemingly endless humanitarian crises— that the world barely seemed to take notice of, until it couldn't be ignored any longer. As hard as it was, God's people have been working tirelessly at the front lines, and often behind them, to bring hope and help to the besieged and desperate. And that includes one American theology professor we'll meet today. Thanks for joining us on this journey to the front lines of faith. We followed along as best we can the developments happening in Ukraine day by day, minute by minute, and we talk about it on Compassion Radio a lot. With us today is another one of those eyes and ears that's been on the ground and understands the culture the people, the situation, and the, the conflict, like not a whole lot of other Americans do, because he's lived there for a lot of years. John White, welcome to Compassion Radio.
1: Thank you very much.
0: You have, for a number of years, been a missionary in eastern Ukraine, so right where most of the conflict erupted at the end of the Maidan uprising and the revolution of dignity, as they call it, and then you got recruited to stay put in the country and not flee, but to get down to brass tacks with those who were doing the work in the trenches, spiritually speaking, back in Kyiv. So you stayed in country. If you could explain a little bit about your mission's focus and your affiliation and how you ended up working with our friends there at the Ukrainian Evangelical Theological Seminary— that would be very helpful for our listeners.
1: Sure. I'm a missionary with World Venture, and uh, I originally moved to eastern Ukraine in 2000. Uh, I studied uh, the Russian language for a couple of years, and then I was asked to teach missions. Uh, There aren't a lot of people teaching missions to Ukrainians, even though many Ukrainians uh, really want to go into missions, and so it was a definite need. I worked uh, there for several years, and actually I met my wife in eastern Ukraine. Uh, She's Ukrainian. And then in 2014, unfortunately, when the war started with Russia, uh, we needed to leave. Or our school actually became a barracks for Russian soldiers. There you go. In God's timing, uh, I met Ivan Rusin, the president of UETS. He is himself uh, a missions teacher, missiologist, and he was interested in finding more help because he wanted to develop more missions programs. But as he found out being president of the school, a lot of his time was taken up uh, raising funds and leading and doing a lot of those things. And so I was glad to be able to join uh, in the fall of 2014.
0: As far as Yvonne goes, he was a passionate guy for the mission of the ministry of UETS. And when you step into a president's role, you are stepping into the fundraiser-in-chief responsibility. And you become the evangelist for the mission of the school and getting other people to believe and invest in you. It's a tough sell when you're sitting in what would be considered over two generations of Americans as being Soviet soil. Mm-hmm. And you don't want to be throwing money at what seems to be a corrupt society, economy, and system. But you still feel like you want the gospel to grow there. You step in to take a lot of the responsibilities, as you said, for what Ivan was doing before. But Mm -hmm. what was the spiritual environment like for you guys when you were trying to make a plan for reaching out and making the case to churches in the West to be investing in the spiritual training of pastors, worship leaders, and evangelists right there in Kyiv? Mm -hmm.
1: Well, Ukraine has a long history of being... One of the most evangelical Christian areas of the the whole former Soviet Union. Actually, the school I was at before was one of the places that trained Ukrainians to become missionaries. And actually, just as Ivan was inviting me, I was involved uh, in doing research into um, kind of that history. How have Ukrainians been involved in doing missions both locally and throughout the world? And uh, I was really encouraged as I was interviewing people, you know, many of whom were, were still alive, who were doing mission works at the end of the 80s and the 90s, because hundreds of them, maybe even thousands, went into Russia, Central Asia, yeah. Siberia, and shared the gospel. And in some ways, uh, that spirit continues. Now, of course, <laughs> they can't do as much work in Russia now, but uh, Ukrainians just have a spirit for doing missions, but many of them just don't have enough training. And so it's a real need. And uh, that res- with a lot of people I spoke to who wanted to help support that movement.
0: When you're training people to come up and bring the gospel to a new generation through times of great foment, mm-hmm. changes on every level, and a lot of desperation and feeling unmoored and in a changing society, mm-hmm. they had it in spades from the late 80s through the end of the 90s. Mm-hmm. In the context of what they were going through, the rise of Putin is not unexpected the loss of an anchor, the idea of the Russian generations feeling like they need a strong man. Mm-hmm. Russians in general, it seems like even through literary history
1: mm-hmm. have
0: all d- defaulted towards this idea that they're not strong without a strong man. So it's like an inferiority complex are going through as a society and the people. Mm-hmm. And yet it doesn't have to be that way. Of course, mm-hmm. societies can grow up. They can find their footing. They can find God in the midst of it and become responsible, contributing people on the planet. Mm-hmm. And yet It has been exactly the opposite for Russians over the past 30 years, especially. Mm -hmm. It's sad for me to see the degradation of the soul Mm -hmm. of a nation like that. And yet it seems to be the case. What was your read when the things started going south politically, morally, and the country not going towards the light of truth and openness and honesty and democracy and other tools of a society that built itself, but going down the hole of despotism and kleptocracy what was your read on that
1: well you're right in terms of the history that russia was dealing with i started my ministry in eastern ukraine and so to be honest i probably understood more russian history than i did ukrainian history and as 2014 broke out and as the differences between russians and ukrainians became more and more clear i've been trying to understand that better well i think only god maybe can (laughs) make it all clear eventually but it's very sad because certainly Ukrainians and Russians have many, many years of history together. I was a part of the Euro Asian Accrediting Association, in which Russian and Ukrainians and others from the former Soviet Union were all involved, theological leaders, educational leaders. And even in 2014, so many of those Russian leaders were just so sad of what had started to happen and came up to me and 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 you know were worried about me and then my colleagues there in eastern Ukraine. And and I think to this day, I think many of them still are are supportive, although a lot of those connections have certainly been uh, frayed. I don't even know all of the state of relationship between everyone, but it's just so sad because Ukraine, I believe, has been such a blessing to Russians in so many ways, both by bringing the gospel and in, in many other ways as well. Yeah, I just, unfortunately, Russia has this history of thinking of themselves as messianic. And essentially, Mm. if they don't have that going for them, they they do tend to feel, just as you said, that lack of esteem, lack of value. You know what I mean? When obviously Christ gives them value. I mean, they've been blessed by having, you know, a thousand years of the Christian message, having the Bible, you know, in their hands. But yet, too much of the time, they felt that they have to be more than that. They have to be, you know like messianical themselves it's just so sad that it now turns to this horrible horrible i mean it's happened before but uh violence that's happening now um and we just pray and hope that they will see how foolish it is how horrible it is but how long it's going to take i have no idea
0: those of us who traffic in ideas and spend our time in media talking all the time You never know who's listening to you out there. You're talking to a black box, as far as we can tell. We just speak into a microphone and trust that God's going to do something with it out there. You have the relationship of people you're actually training, you know, personally. The need for a core truth. What is the ethics of discovering what's factual, what's not, and what needs to be discussed, and what is of value, what is not of value? Mm-hmm. Those are things you have to sort out, and it requires discernment, wisdom, and mentorship. Mm-hmm. Whether you're in media or you're in the classroom teaching the subjects you teach about the history of missiology and the future of it, I fear greatly that we're in a time where truth is no longer tolerated. Mm-hmm. Whether it's Russia or in our own politics, the, the bent towards Christian, quote, nationalism, which to me is an oxymoron, you can't have a nation over God. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't work. It never has worked, and any nation that has attempted to make the state not just the arbiter of God's truth, but the definer of God's truth, make themselves out to be God. And I fear that we would bend ourselves toward that point, too, as a nation, that where we depend upon ourselves, come up with truth, and then tell God what it is. And I think Russia is really at that point now. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think you alluded to the the loss of fellowship with those who might have been trained to bring the gospel there and them being drawn into the orbit of a political power versus spiritual liberty. Mm -hmm. These are not small subjects we're contemplating here, and it's not small for the people in Ukraine because they're living with the direct consequences of that kind of supersessionalism of reaching over Christ to become, as you said, messianic. That's a great term, I think, for it. Russia seems to be acting in a messianic mission with an inferiority complex, if I could put it kind of as a compound thing. Mm -hmm. Inferiority complexes that lead to destructive behavior are bad enough in relationships that are individual. But when it's on a nation state level, it means mass murder. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're seeing right now. So you trained people. You've lost people to, quote, the other side. They've gone the way of power or think they have, and believe that's to be the truth. How do you reconcile that for yourself when you're investing in the lives of people and you're praying for them that truth would come alive in them? Mm -hmm. Have you had the failures in your heart about people you've, quote, lost, or have you been able to reach out to them and steer them back towards gospel truth and God's way of bringing us into it? What's it been like for you? Mm
1: -hmm. I've been involved in education now for about 20 years, theological education. And having done that, uh, exactly what you're talking about in terms of The importance of truth and the importance that we are called as Christians to seek the truth Mm -hmm. um, is something very important. And so if I go back, and again, I don't know maybe what you've already talked to with your listeners about. Unfortunately, the whole educational system of Soviet times, which still we see the hallmarks of perhaps really a worsening of since communism fell, is that your individual identity, your ideas are not important. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, when we have our students try to research something, they feel it's totally fine just to quote others and give no citation. You know, hmm. um, we talk about plagiarism, and for them, hmm. again, this is what they came out of—the idea of you having your own idea is foolish. You're supposed to quote Lenin or Stalin or whoever it is, right? Because and they were supposed to
0: assume you are, yeah.
1: Right, right. So citation is not necessary, right? And in school, there's just unfortunately a massive corruption. Both in Ukraine and Russia have faced this, where, for example, teachers are paid enough money, and so they basically set up circumstances that the students can only pass by bribing.
0: Compassion Radio will continue to keep bringing you encouragement from the Word, inspiring stories from the front lines of faith, and awesome opportunities to make a difference for the kingdom around the world. But we need your help right now to continue doing just that. Please, take a moment today to consider how you might help us to accomplish our unique media ministry and mission. Friends, we're focused right now on the current crisis in and around Ukraine. I personally met with dozens of refugees and kingdom workers who ran to the front lines of need and have selflessly given of themselves completely, thoroughly, and as I saw, to the point of indescribable exhaustion. I saw refugee and servant alike shiver in a vicious blizzard that struck the first week of March. They were very much alike in one important way. They were absolutely determined to survive this ordeal and to redeem what their lives have become. We need to follow their example. Will you help us today? Please give generously, even sacrificially, right away. I know that God will be pleased if we do. So call us today at 1-800-868-2478. Mail us at P.O. Box 2770, Orange, California, 92859, or give online at CompassionRadio.com.
1: And as a Christian educator, I've never been bribed. But one of the other ways that students make it through is they, they, they write cheat sheets, they cheat with one another. How can you not help me, your Christian brother in Christ, you know? Hmm. Um, yeah. And there's a whole mentality that we've tried to instill, and sometimes for the better and sometimes not. <laughs> Truth matters, and you need to yeah. invest time and energy, and yeah, you can't just copy everything from the internet, right? You've got to try to figure out stuff and have your own opinion on it. Sometimes that's the hardest thing, not just finding the information, but how do you analyze it? How do you apply it to your setting? That's been hard, but I definitely have seen some changes in some of my students and some of those that have graduated from the programs I've been involved with. And I think I'll just say UETS, one of the things that UETS is particularly good at is trying to make everything we learn in the classroom applied to real life, to real ministry. We've made a real emphasis in that in my uh, Mission in the Modern City program, where we really try to get our students during the classes out into visiting other ministries, seeing what's happening, trying to have them engage with uh, some very interesting authors and books, and then trying to have them write research papers that are relevant to their ministry right now, and maybe in some cases to their ministry in the future. To me, that's been a hard and slow process. I've seen some of the results, but of course, uh, it does break your heart when you see people move away from that when you have breaks in terms of fellowship between Russians and Ukrainians, things like that. And we do see some of that. But to be honest, during the war, at least in Ukraine uh, uh, these last years, I've been very encouraged by seeing uh, the applications that so many of my former students and some of our graduates have been taking. It's been very encouraging the way they've been both sharing the gospel to those who really need to hear it and showing the gospel in terms of just caring for people.
0: And that's happening within churches and ministries within Russia.
1: I believe so, but right now we don't hear a lot about what's happening in Russia. <laughs> to be honest, I'm even a little bit afraid when I contact people I know in Russia, what to say and what not to, because I don't want to get them in trouble. <laughs>
0: yeah, coded language. Now this kind of reminds me that this seems to be the same process, historically speaking, that the church was going through in the second and third centuries, the development of Christian ethics. Mm-hmm. What does it mean to act on truth as defined by God, And drawn out of, extrapolated from those writings that go all the way back to Moses and pre-Moses, and the testament of all those who lived with Jesus and by and for Jesus afterwards. They had to develop an entire coda of all the things that meant to be and act, not just biblically, but to act like Jesus would act in that circumstances. They were the first, I think, to invent the concept of what would Jesus do in that mm-hmm. situation. Mm-hmm. Therefore, we are little Christ. We have the name. We need to act like he absolutely would because we are him now. We are his hands and feet to the world. And that battle going forth from there has been a grievous one in different centuries where it slips back into totalitarianism and alignment with the states. Everything from the Inquisitions to other, all of these temptations generation by generation keep cycling around. But the church itself as a body identified it. We need philosophers. We need theologians and leaders that show us what this really means in our context, in our time. And that is still true. We seem to be in the post-truth era in the world, but now I'm afraid we're almost in the post-truth era in the church. Mm. So how do you tie the students you're talking to now into the truth that the church discovered, you know, what, 1,800 years ago? hmm
1: Yeah, my colleagues, you know, I take a lot of direction from my Ukrainian colleagues because they understand the context better than I do. They've been asking me, and I've been doing my best, although it's not always easy, to try to figure out uh, how do we, as Christians, how do we influence all the different parts of society? Mm -hmm. Especially in Soviet times, you know, the church was under assault, really, to be honest, similar today in a lot of parts of the former Soviet Union, but it hasn't been true in Ukraine. Ukraine's had the most freedom of all of the former Soviet countries. But how do we have that go beyond the church walls. Uh, Churches used to be just, you know, the only right we have to to talk is, you know, within the church walls and occasionally maybe at a funeral or something like that, you know, Mm -hmm. or wedding. Oftentimes I'd use those opportunities to evangelize. (laughs) But anyway, we're good at, you know, ministering to the poor. We're good at ministering to people maybe struggling with alcoholism and drug addiction, because those are the only people where we've been allowed to talk to. You know, Mm. I don't necessarily have all the answers, but I know that Ukrainians, especially since 2014, maybe I should just take a moment. 2014 was a watershed. Of course, it was horrible in terms of what Russia did. But all of a sudden, essentially, the government was broken down, right? And you have all of these refugees fleeing. You had an attempt to stand for something on Maidan, and Christians were a part of that. Christians had set up a prayer tent, you know, and they were praying for people. After the war had started, Christians were going and doing short-term missions to try to help rebuild. Christians were becoming chaplains in the military, in
0: hospitals. I had the chance to walk with Oles Dmitrenko and see where the tent was. We spent a, a great day together retracing not just the events of the days that amounted to the Maidan months, but to enter into the soul of those who had it in their hearts. They're haunted by the things that almost happened and the things that did that were violent. Nobody that I saw, including Oleg and Oles and all the other guys that were directly involved with the prayer Tent ministry, none of them seemed to not have PTSD in some way or the other. Because they were so strung out for so long and holding together this thin, slender thread of faith and hope. But you're facing down an awful lot of guns. And somehow they walked out of it. And they're not the same people afterwards, for good or for worse. What was your experience then dealing with those who God put on the spot and actually stood their ground and faced down evil and saw the transformation to a society that would say, no, we stand together. We don't stand alone, but we stand apart. Mm-hmm.
1: <sighs> Well, I would say the biggest thing would be uh, people like that asking, okay, we were able to stand up in this period of protest, right? So how do we influence beyond that, you know, in the everyday? Mm-hmm. And so that's been something that we've been working on at UATS and trying to connect with ministries uh, that are having more success in terms of, say, influencing business people, influencing mm-hmm. people in the arts, influencing Uh, young people. I mean, all sorts of different areas need influence and need greater Christian witness. And we've also been trying to connect with different Christians in ministry in different parts of the world and learning from Mm -hmm. them. Um, We've been blessed by uh, some folks from England who have a long history of connecting church planning with community organizing and how maybe starting a school is maybe the first step we need to take, you know, like a grade school if we then want to start to plant a church or sometimes these things happen together. Where
0: you can plant those seeds of ethics right there and Mm -hmm. expect of the parents something new and different that Mm -hmm. the children will not have experienced had they gone through the government schools or this what's been offered to them as the very base level of Mm -hmm. societal obligations Mm -hmm. you raise the expectations you raise the people.
1: Mm-hmm, absolutely and christian schools have become wildly popular Good. in ukraine uh just because i mean the, the, unfortunately the government schools are so corrupt and the level of education the kids actually receive is so so small that even i, I don't i mean i guess i don't know i can't compare it for sure but it almost seems yeah. it's like the amount you have to pay in bribes you might as well just pay it to a private school which <laughs> you're going to actually yeah. get an education <laughs> you
0: know? bribe god to teach my kid okay so the transformation issue You got to get new ideas into new ears. And by that spark of inspiration, God gives them an epiphany, an aha moment. Oh, I can think about this differently. Something else is possible. Something I don't think I've ever comprehended before is what God is actually calling me to. Those are big events in, in individuals' lives when they step over a worldview threshold. Mm-hmm. And that's what you're talking about. You're not just talking about a difference in worship style mm-hmm. or a difference in a theological point about what baptism means. You're talking mm-hmm. about people perceiving what's possible. Mm-hmm. In other words, the divine inspiration towards imagination comes alive. Mm-hmm. And that's why the worship arts is such a big part of UBTs's program. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It is transformative. And transform people transform the world. So... You invested in them. You mentioned earlier that part of it was getting them into good teaching and good authors and good books. Mm -hmm. But that requires a lot of translating because most of the world is a library of Christian thought, which sometimes just bridges into Western philosophy. But nonetheless, the influence that Christians have had across the centuries is primarily codified into books that were written in English or in Western European languages, Mm post-Latin. You have taken on the responsibility to try to start developing a focus library. Mm -hmm. Those best of the best that you can say, we need to spend our time getting these ideas into the vernacular Mm -hmm. so that the concepts come alive in their own language, and their own idioms. Mm -hmm. Tell me what that's been like and the kind of books that you've been busy translating for the Ukrainians and Russian speakers. Mm
1: -hmm. Now, I focused on books in the area of urban missions because that's the program that I was asked to create. Um, I should say that I know my colleagues have been working on a lot of other things. I know in the area of psychology, especially in this like trauma issues that we've been talking about. And I know in a number of other theological areas as well. But in terms of my area, we were trying to think, how do we combine? We want to have a good program. So obviously we need, you need textbooks, right? If you're going to teach something, yeah. you need textbooks. But we also would like to influence larger society. We'd like to have books that churches and church leaders can take and use, because we understand that the the issue of reaching the people who have largely moved into cities. I mean, Ukraine's almost 70% urban at this point. Hmm. You see that also in the way the war has been taking place too. Yeah. It's been focused on cities. That we need to get these ideas into more hands, right? Beyond just what we're going to do, we want to influence society in a larger way. So we've tried to, as you've said, try to pick out some of the best of the best. We've tried to pick uh, in terms of biblical studies, theology, how does God look at cities? How have we? How do, How do? can we learn from the models of urban ministry in the Bible? It used to be a lot through the book of Acts.
0: Yes, of course.
1: We also want to talk about how do you research a city? You know, We, we were able to invite hmm. in one author. John Feuter started Moody Bible Institute's uh, program in urban ministry, and he came and helped us translate uh, his book called Neighborhood Mapping. Um, that's been hmm. very popular. We're also trying to understand the different cultures of the city in terms of reaching immigrants, reaching the poor, reaching influencers. All these different types of people may need different kinds of ministry. We really want to also challenge our students to think, we want to reach Ukraine, but we want to think beyond that. And so we've also yeah. been drawing in some authors who have some real rich experience in reaching the poorest of the poor in slums. Also yeah. doing things I mentioned, community organizing. This is an idea, especially after my dawn, that my Ukrainian colleagues are like, oh, we need to understand, you know, how as Christians can we influence society, you know, outside the church walls, right?
0: How is community uh, built, period? Yeah. And how is our community our our mm-hmm. kingdom community mm-hmm. thrive mm-hmm. in the midst of it
1: trying to understand better issues of power so much yeah. of the time christians feel powerless and the, you know the government decides things and we don't know even how to reach you know into those areas you know and... yeah. I got to say as a mm-hmm. dissent
0: on that point that mm-hmm. I got to challenge the presupposition kind of like mm-hmm. we talked about russia before assuming mm-hmm. that they need a strong man because they feel a certain mm-hmm. way mm-hmm. i feel like especially the evangelical church in america feels underpowered mm-hmm. or powerless, mm-hmm. even when they have massive influence mm-hmm. and are massively influenced by very specific motivators mm-hmm. and thinkers and institutions. Mm-hmm. We have, as evangelicals primarily listen to these programs on the station where we broadcast, we have more power in our mm-hmm. hands than we've ever had in the history of the republic, and yet we mm-hmm. don't feel like it. Yep.
1: Yeah, I very much agree. And actually, yeah, the book that my English colleagues encourage us to translate is called "Building a People of Power" <laughs> by Robert mm-hmm. Linthicum <laughs> uh, who worked with World Vision for many years. Yeah, it's been very interesting for me because I've been learning from my Ukrainian colleagues. Even of us, we've been trying to learn from other people around the world who have a whole lot more experience in ministering in
0: these areas. We'll hear more from our special guest, John White, on tomorrow's program. Send your special gift for the church in Ukraine today. Just call us at 1-800-868-2478. Write us at Compassion Radio, PO Box 2770, Orange, California, 92859. Or make your gift through our website, CompassionRadio.com. We need you, friend, so contact us today.